0: It's episode 10 here on Oscar Sunday, but the film we're talking about received 12 Oscar nominations and took home eight. It's on the waterfront. I'm Austin Johnson.
1: I'm Connor is Gary, Welcome to Oscar Sunday.
0: On the Waterfront, my man, this is your first time seeing it. Yes. Absolute, absolute classic. Uh, one, one of the staples of the 50s, one of Marlon Brando's greatest performances, maybe his best. What do you think about that?
1: I agree. I think Brando brings a gravitas to this film that is unrivaled. I think he really proved to Hollywood that he was going to be the new golden boy with this movie. Nobody really brought this kind of pain to a role like this in the, like prior to the, the 50, you know, films were kind of on a conveyor belt in the early days of Hollywood. They were just, you know, they'd make them, they'd release them, they'd make them they'd release them. They didn't really focus a lot on them, on the performance, on the backstory, on the growth of a character, but Brando unbelievably brought just decades of, you know,
0: age and pain to Terry
1: Malloy. And it really shows.
0: Yeah, man, it's incredible stuff. I'll never forget the first time I saw this and just how impacted I was by, but by really just by his, the first time I didn't quite understand the impact that this had, this film had on uh, film history, but now I do. But when I first saw it, you just, his, just his eyes alone kind of suck you in. And then the way he's, the way he's talking, like, I'm not ashamed of it, you know, just kind of has this gravitas is such a great word it really defines Marlon Brando, especially at this time in the fifties when he, this is the fourth best acting, you know, nomination he got in a row and and then won for it, you know, on all the waterfront as Terry Malloy, as you mentioned, it's just incredible stuff. So we're going to be talking about that film. It is so damn good. Uh, The 27th Academy Awards, which occurred in 1955, talking about the films of 1954 uh, there's some cool films from there. Alfred Hitchcock, of course. We like some films of his from '54. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, we've we've talked about um, how we want to go all over the place here on Oscar Sunday. This is our tenth episode, and we're just kind of keeping the train moving, going to different decades. You know, last week we were in the '80s with Dead Poet Society. That was a blast. Uh, here we are in the '50s. Man, are you? Do you feel confident talking about '50s film or? Is it more, does it more bore you? Like you said, the conveyor belt type thing.
1: I don't think any decade of film bores me. I no, think yeah. it really depends on the movie itself. I think that things were a lot more formulaic in the fifties. I think that it took, you know, the, the uh, abolition, of the uh, end of the Hayes Code and the um, kind of film revolution, like the hippie movement and just people kind of doing their own thing for the first time in the sixties and seventies to really bring variety to film but yes. prior to that, I think there are some gems. I mean, there's some 40s and 50s films I adore. But yeah, yeah. I do think that I'm a lot less uh, versed in this in this era of film. But with this show, I hope to be more versed.
0: Yeah, for sure. And on um, FilmGasm, our our other show where we typically talk about genre films and uh, all kinds of different stuff that's you know typically looked at as like B grade movies, but we just see them as uh, totally different so we try to give a different perspective on them that's what we try to do here uh is just because they're oscar-nominated movies doesn't mean we can't be hard on them yeah but but on the waterfront really does I, I i'll be honest the first time i saw it when i was 19 or so i i didn't quite get it i didn't quite understand you know i was like yeah this is good but now when i watch them just you know just absolutely blown away by the subtlety of the performances and then marlon brando who's just like boom 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 you know like king kong coming through the streets just capturing you know every scene and you know it's black and white but it just does not matter it does not matter no uh yeah the 50s is something i want to dive into more on film guys and we've done the all decades you know where we do our top 10s and you know we've done the 2010s the t- 2000s 90s 80s and 70s but we feel like we need to see more of the 60s, 50s, 40s, and so on to do that. And this is where I think it does start for you and I is kind of challenging ourselves watching these films, re-watching these films, and figuring out why they're classics. Or, yeah. maybe, or maybe saying, hey, I don't think this is a classic. In this case, this is very much a classic. Uh, there's some other movies that I love from 1954. We did some homework. Um, I'll let you talk about those films and how you got them. One of them is through the mail, right?
1: Yeah, I still do Netflix through the mail. It's a great way to I'll get yes. films that I don't necessarily want to pay for, but I still want to see. And uh, the film we got through the mail for uh, for this show was The Kane Mutiny, which was up against yes. On the Waterfront for Best Picture. It was hum- one of Humphrey Bogart's last movies. A classic in its own right, a great uh, courtroom drama. And uh, honestly, I think On the Waterfront's only real competition that year. But... Uh, that was that was great. We also watched um, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, a fifty-four musical that I don't think has aged particularly well. <laughs> it's a lot of people's favorite movies. One of my it's my aunt; it's her favorite movie. So sorry about that, Amy. But uh, yeah, just just not 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 for us here at FilmGasm. Yeah, no, it's so weird. But uh, honestly, the film I cannot believe was not up for Best Picture was Rear Window. Okay, r- Rear Window and A Star Is Born. What the yeah. fuck? A Star is Born, Judy Garland's big comeback. She lost Best Actress faming, famously to uh, Grace Kelly for The Country Girl. Ridiculous. Uh, considered a, even to this day to be
0: an absolute fuck-up. And she wasn't there. Judy Garland wasn't there because she was like having, I think, her third or fourth child. Yeah. So she she wasn't at the ceremony even. So like that, some people are like, oh, maybe, you know, ah, she deserved it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, back then it was a lot. Getting an Oscar was uh, you expected it. A lot of the times, like I know uh, Jimmy Stewart, when he won for the Philadelphia story was not going to go, but then they called him and say, Hey, Jimmy, you might want to go tonight. Yeah. (laughs) And he's like, okay. And he got best actor. So uh, I don't know. It just kind of takes the the mystique out of it. I think they stopped doing that soon after
0: that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You, you, you want that surprise element, right? When you're watching on TV live, you want them to be excited to go on stage. Marlon Brando, when he wins uh, from this this year, it, he he like sprints to the stage. It's it's yeah. delightful.
1: He's so smart. He's
0: like, I fucking knew it. <laughs> <laughs> Fourth times time. the charm, bitch.
1: <laughs> There's a certain point where arrogance is a little earned, and I think Brando at some point in his career did earn that. I mean, he took it to a crazy fucking degree, but he did earn a bit of arrogance in his career. Yeah. <laughs> but Rear Window, man. I mean, arguably. It can be considered to be Hitchcock's masterpiece. Rear Window is a beautiful, tense fucking movie. And it didn't really score much of anything at the Oscars. It was up for a couple, but nowhere near what it should have been up for. And then you've got like, uh, I haven't personally seen it, but I've heard um, Akira's, uh, Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai. That was that year. Yeah. Um, Creature from the Black Lagoon, Godzilla. Like this was a big year for monster movies. Yep. Dial M for Murder, that's a fucking, that's a good movie. No, dude, yeah. guy, Alfred. Oh, yeah, we've talked about Hitchcock. Uh, we've only done Psycho on the Film and podcast. We definitely are going to do more. And, of course, we're going to do more here, too. We talked a little bit about Rebecca
0: earlier uh, in the running. but uh, did, did you know that Rebecca is apparently going to be remade? I heard about that. I read that. Yeah, I couldn't believe that. <laughs> that's nuts. And did you hear that? Bradley Cooper is probably going to star in Paul Thomas Anderson's new movie. <laughs> <laughs> what oh. on earth? Well, DDL's retired. P- PTA needs a new golden boy. Yeah, he, needs to, he has to find the new guy. And I, I'm thinking, you know, it says stars, but he's probably going to be, because it says it's like a more of a coming of age kind of movie. So I'm thinking he's going to be like a teacher or something or a dad. I don't know.
1: Maybe. We'll see. We'll definitely we know when that comes out. I'm sure we'll be doing it on this show. <laughs>
0: yes, it'll be a bloody event. Oh, yeah.
1: Okay, here we go. Rear Window was up for four Oscars. Yes. Uh,
0: Hitchcock was up for Best Director.
1: Uh, it was up for Best Screenplay, Cinematography, and Best Sound Recording. Jimmy Stewart, not up for Best Actor. Uh, the film is not up for Best Picture. Didn't win any of those awards because On the Waterfront kind of snaked everything. Most of it, anyway.
0: Yeah, I mean, twelve, twelve nominations and eight wins. That is, whew, that's a nice batting average right there. On yep. the waterfront is on the waterfront is definitely one of the heaviest movies we've we've covered on here. Obviously, we did a, a big five winner, so that's that's a big deal when you go go the distance and win those big five. But but eight wins. Oh man, what do you would you rather get that complete big five or get like seven or eight wins? Um, <laughs> that's tough. Uh, cause I think that, you know, having the big
1: five really cements you as a masterpiece, but eight wins is no slouch. And I think this film is, you know, can, when you consider subject matter, this film is intensely heavier than it happened one night, which is, oh my you know, gosh, a, a rom-com.
0: Yeah. So,
1: and the only thing keeping this from taking the big five was it wasn't up for best actress.
0: yeah exactly it does it simply doesn't have that that role there yeah
1: so i don't know i think it depends on the film like a lot of different things
0: yeah yeah i i think if you can get eight wins on 12 nominations that's you know uh that's about as good as you can get at the oscars uh 1954 is something that i you know i i want to want to dive into more it's something that's referenced a lot we (laughs) you and i were talking about uh, what mistake did I make? I was talking about Barton Fink, but it was actually a quiz show yeah. where On the Waterfront Marty is referenced. And that's really funny because quiz show is the first review I ever wrote for film Filmgasm. <laughs> so uh, the, the way movies just kind of connect, it's always so much fun. Uh, yeah. I have an absolute blast. But what we do here on Oscar Sunday, for any listeners who are new, if you're coming back, thank you. Uh, we go through all of the ones that the film we're talking about On the Waterfront was nominated for. We're going to go through those categories, start from the bottom. In this case, we have to scroll to the very bottom (laughs) (laughs) because it was up for 12. Uh, That first one's Best Film Editing. Uh, Take it away, Connor. Best Film Editing.
1: So, On the Waterfront took this. It was up against Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, The High and the Mighty, The Kane Mutiny, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Hmm. (laughs) So, I'm going to... I'm going to give this to On the Waterfront. I think it's edited quite well. Uh, but I think the Kane Mutiny could have taken it. Yeah, uh, yeah, there's no – I would have no qualms with that. Yeah, I haven't seen the other uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I haven't seen that yet. I've heard it's really good.
0: I've never <clears throat> window. heard High behind the Mighty. <laughs> yeah, <clears throat> rear window. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> um,
1: yeah, I think uh, – <sighs> Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. I really want to see that. Kirk Douglas is in that, right?
0: Yes. Yeah. I have not seen that either. I'm. I've. I've i I've heard mixed things. As far as for me, I think I'm gonna maybe enjoy it, or I don't know. I. I I've heard it. You kind of stick your foot in one of the, one of the other camp. <laughs> uh, but but I, I I don't know like anything about the high and the mighty. I'm not sure. Yeah. About that one. Here.
1: You know, we don't see everything. We're not machines. We take. We do what we can.
0: Oh no. Uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're both 25 fucking years old here. So, uh, <laughs> there's, there's only so much that our brains could have taken so far. And personally, I just got a late start on some of this stuff. So, uh, I, I definitely intend on seeing all of these when I can. I I'm looking over here. I'm just curious. Yeah. Uh, uh, for best special effects. I wonder what this is. Hell and high water. Ooh. Wonder what that is.
1: That looks I was like, huh?
0: Because I was a pretty big fan of that 2016 film, Hell or High Water.
1: Ooh. An atomic bomb of foreign origin had been exploded somewhere outside of the United States. The atomic reaction originated in the remote area in the North Pacific waters. This is the story of that explosion. Hmm. Interesting. Is this a true story? (laughs) What the hell? Neat. Richard Widmark. I'm going to have to check this out. No, no kidding. kidding. See, you find gems all the time. Films that you know, I never would have even known about had we not
0: done this show. Exactly. Just the shit you just kind of get. You start reading, uh, you know, uh, Rogue Cop. There's a movie over here called Rogue Cop from 1954. Hell yeah. <laughs> Rogue Cop.
1: Love it. <laughs> the, uh, the next Oscar on the waterfront one was Best Art Direction for a black and white film. They used to separate it between black and white films and color films. Uh, Thankfully, they stopped doing that eventually. Um, Made for a lot more categories, that's for sure. Yeah, no kidding. It was up against Sabrina, uh, Le Plaisir, I don't speak French, Executive Suite, and The Country Girl. And I haven't seen any of those films, so I cannot judge. But the set design for On the Waterfront is pretty good.
0: Yeah, I I find On the Waterfront to be this place that like I it's one of those magical sets of from movies where I feel the same way about like Casablanca where it's like oh my god I would love to just go on a fucking time machine and go see that magic be made you know (laughs) and on the waterfront has that exact thing
1: for sure then there was best cinematography for black and white film it was up against Sabrina the movie rogue cop executive suite and the country girl Again, haven't seen any of those, but this I would say definitely goes to on the waterfront. This movie is filmed perfectly, and uh, it really inc- incorporates like everything you need to know about this neighborhood and about this world. Cinematography is where you get that, and
0: yeah, they did a great job. Mr. Hell yeah, Boris I, I, I got to see uh, Rogue Cop, you know, that's just such a cool name. Rogue Cop, it sounds like some 80s horror movie, <laughs> yeah, but it's a it's a you know, nice piece of film noir, you know. So I, I want to check it out. Janet Leigh. Uh, huh, huh. Exactly. Janet huh. Lee. <laughs> oh,
1: boy. Uh, then we have best writing story and screenplay. So that would be uh, best original screenplay. It was up against Knock on Wood, the Glenn Miller story, Genevieve, the Barefoot Contessa. Now, I have seen the Glenn Miller story. Uh, I watched that in music class in, uh, I think, ninth grade. And it's a story of famous trombone player Glenn Miller and his uh, ill-timed disappearance. Uh, he was likely shot down by uh, enemy aircraft. Jimmy Stewart plays Glenn Miller. And it's a good movie. It's, uh, it's a good story. But it's no on the waterfront. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, one, no one's taken that away
0: that's tough yeah it's no on the waterfront no no it's not Mm -mm. this
1: movie's big on um on screenplay like the dialogue is you know popping and it's a film that like you know in a decade where like i said it was kind of formulaic to really go the extra mile to make an original compelling narrative like this that like stands up to crime and stands up to you know identity and like what you want to do with your life and making the wrong choices. Like there's a lot to relate to in this movie.
0: <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, man, it's going to be hard. You know, I think it's going to help a lot talking about the plot for those reasons that you're pointing out uh, later on in the episode, we'll dive deep into the plot of on the waterfront I think It's going to be important for me to kind of go down that road and discuss it out loud with somebody because I, it was like this pastime rewatching it uh yesterday was like kind of like a fucking experience kind of like emotional where you do feel you you feel these just like really relatable adult things happening you know just fucking fucking grown up shit you know like yeah just normal ass working class people just dealing with shit and I fucking like that I really like that I really like watching people that are not fucking archetypes that aren't fucking you know clearly written you know as this figure or character they're just they're just people you know they're just written as people so that's that's really important for this movie uh, it totally deserves that I, I, haven't, <laughs> I haven't seen those other movies but but I I just I have a I have a hard time believing that any really any movie in the 50s would have a hard, uh, easy time beating on the waterfront
1: yeah I mean it was the it was the darling. And that takes us to Best Director, where we have Billy Wilder for Sabrina, Alfred Hitchcock for Rear Window, William A. Wellman for the High and the Mighty, George Seaton for The Country Girl and the Winner, Elliot Kazan for On the Waterfront. <sighs> what do you think? <sighs>
0: this is hard. You know, I think it's I think we're both on the same page here. I think it's down to our boy Hitchcock and Kazan. Yes. Yeah it's really hard this is like a coin toss because you have uh the kind of classic hollywood like i said it kind of puts you in like a a uh, you know time capsule here you are on the waterfront but rear window is this like it's so up our uh, in our wheelhouse it's upper alley yeah uh, rear window it's fucking creepy and intense but i understand if like someone wouldn't love that movie i don't quite understand if someone doesn't enjoy on the waterfront
1: See I feel I feel similar but I do I don't really understand why anybody wouldn't like the rear window. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't do know. All this film.
0: And I do really not know film. it's more of a crime drama than anything. Else. It really is. It really yeah, really is not like whoa, weird as Hitch, Hitchcock, but it's it's I uh, I don't know. I don't I don't know. I, I, maybe I'm being too generous. I <laughs> cuz I'm no, definitely I, just, I get it. I, I'm definitely more partial to the Hitchcock stuff, right? Uh but it's hard here like these two i i have i have them both in my top 100 movies ever like i have a list type that's never ending and they're both there you know they're both in there and i don't i don't see them moving well to give you guys a little bit more knowledge on elliot kazan
1: because he's not a name that typically you know a lot of people know a lot of casual moviegoers like almost everybody recognizes alfred hitchcock but elliot kazan like you really gotta be a film buff to know that name yeah and uh, this would be his second Oscar win. He won in 1948 for *Gentleman's Agreement*, and was also nominated for directing *A Streetcar Named Desire*. So he'd worked with Brando a couple times, and he would also be directed for, uh, be nominated for directing *East of Eden* and *America, America*. He got an honorary award in '99, so he was a big name, and uh, so he. <laughs> I'm going to say, you know what? He already had one. Give Hitchcock a bone. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go rear window. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> and that's just, you know, it's personal preference. Rear window. I really liked on the waterfront, but rear window is a favorite.
0: So yeah. Yeah. I like personally like it a little bit more. Just it's like a, it's a little bit more in my, yeah. Again, in my wheelhouse. Yeah. <laughs> um, Yeah. So that was it. And then we,
1: that takes us to best supporting actress. We have Claire Trevor for The High and the Mighty, Jan Sterling for The High and the Mighty, Katie Gerardo for Broken Lance, Nina Foch for Executive Suite, and the winner, Eva Marie Saint for On the Waterfront. This was Eva Marie Saint's first movie, and she fucking killed it and earned that award.
0: Yeah, I agree. Uh, I, I was kind of blown away by her yesterday, watching it. How she handles Brando is like, what? <laughs> How are you doing that, man? I know, you, right? Jeez. You, how are you doing that? And that, I don't even want to just, that's kind of almost disrespectful or not handle. Fucking playing tennis with him. Fucking going. Fucking <laughs> playing. Remi- Reminding me a lot of what I see in uh, our, our girl, Rhea Seahorn, in Better Call Saul when she's going with Bob Odenkirk and these other actors. And it's like, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm as good or better than you so like you have to keep going and brando brando's clearly being pushed like clearly being pushed in those scenes when he's trying to like get her like to uh you know take the shot and like drink the beer and he's like but well, wham you know and she's like wham you know all oh, that's how is she handling him like that it's you really know what brilliant. i loved
1: most about this movie and it was probably because i had just watched seven brides for seven brothers it, it's the organic development of their relationship It makes sense. They're not just like, we're the two leads in this movie, so obviously we're in love from the beginning. No, that's not how people work. People meet each other. People learn about each other. People fall for each other. or People, no, don't. That's how people work. And in this movie, it's a very complicated series of feelings that they have for each other, and you feel that complication. I love that. Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Howard Keel walks into town, sees a woman he likes, and is like, I want that one. (laughs) <laughs> walks up to her and is like hey marry me and she's like well i was gonna milk this cow but all right <laughs> and they're fucking married are you kidding me <laughs> what insulting horrific chauvinist bullshit is that <laughs> and then you have a movie like on the waterfront that actually tries
0: <laughs> it tries and yeah and does really well yeah i mean i could I, I, I couldn't agree more with that <laughs> uh, com- comparing those two like seven brides compared to waterfront is like here's what people envision from 1954 <laughs> and here's actually some good stuff that was happening in 1954 <laughs> seven know?
1: brides for seven brothers is, is what i picture almost like every other film being in the 50s
0: that's why i don't i haven't
1: seen a lot from it it's really only been recent in yeah, the past years or year or so that i've really you know wanted to check out more from this era because I've learned about films like On the Waterfront and Rear Window that are gems in this sea of just unrelatable musicals. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's that's such a good point. Because I think as you get to our age is when you kind of decide, all right, do I want to just kind of go see the movies and, you know, see stuff in theaters and all that? Or 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 do I want and you know, I have a conversation with people and be on Twitter or whatever. Or do I want to, like, do this for myself and try to, like, really find something out of, this, out of this medium, out of this beautiful art form that is filmmaking? And you and I have definitely reached a place where, like, just fucking feed me any of it, you know? And yeah. when you put down the walls of, when you, like, unlearn and relearn that 50s, 40s, 30s, 60s, whatever decade it may be, that there is good stuff to offer, that you have to look in the right place and listen to the right people um when you hear a bunch of people over and over and over say on the waterfront is fucking amazing it's for a reason you know (laughs) and and there's a reason you don't hear a bunch of young people saying seven brides bro like that movie's sick you you know there's a reason for it you know the cream rises to the crop over time you know the, the gems will find their way you know and on the waterfront is certainly not a gem it's one that was a hit right away and has been like that but you and i are definitely in that place where we want to find those. And that's partly what the show is for is we go back to these decades to give them that respect. Um, And
1: also like a film that has eight Oscar wins is going to stand out even today, no matter what the decade is, because those awards do mean something. They do mean, you know, to movie buffs, they are a, you know, a significant thing to approach where you're like, Oh, they, they, you know, they gave that movie eight Oscars, so it's got to be worth checking out.
0: And yeah, 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 yeah. Even if even yeah, even if you don't like like it, you still are like, holy shit, that's a lot.
1: <laughs> that's why they put that on you know DVD cases, Academy Award winner, two thousand eleven, or whatever. That that's gonna people are gonna see that and think, well, damn, this is probably pretty good.
0: Yeah, yeah. I just, I, I think it's very important to to try to put those walls down, you know, as you're trying to get into film more and that goes, that goes more for foreign stuff, right. Where people don't want to yeah. read subtitles or this or that, or, you know, ultimately be challenged in that way. Uh, yeah. They want to be inter They want to be entertained. So you, you I'm just, I just don't feel that way about movies. I don't see movies as this like privilege to escape. I see it as people putting their fucking heart on the line. Yeah. and and putting their guts out there and pouring, pouring their brains onto paper and onto the screen. That's, that's like what I see it as. That's why I love it so much. It's like so dark. Like if you think about it, you know, you think about someone putting their movie out there and people are either just going to rag on it or love it or, or whatever it may be. And that's just, I, I admire people who do that. And that's, you know, that's you and I, we love movies for that reason. And this show Oscar Sunday, is something that we can go even further and not just talking about, you know, like, oh, the Oscars, oh, this or that. It's about checking out these films that are, you know, that need a reevaluation, that yeah. deserve that. Deserve that.
1: Being, having an Oscar nomination, whether it's, a, you know, whether it's deserved or not, it makes these films a piece of cinematic history. Yes. And we want to revisit that and determine, A, if it really deserved that Oscar, and B, if it holds up and we enjoy it, and if it's worth talking about now.
0: And that's yeah. why we did this. Yeah. And so far, so far we've done pretty well. You know, some of the picks have been personal. You know, we did Pulp Fiction to start the show out. We knew what we were getting into there. We love that movie. Yeah, uh, Defy, Defy Bloods, we got lucky. It was good. In, yeah. the bedroom, we, in the bedroom, we hadn't seen, we got lucky. It was good. Uh, th- there will come a time where there will be a film on here that we probably won't see as as classic as maybe, you know, the Oscars have seen.
1: Yeah, it'll happen. Not everything, you know, no, nothing is a classic
0: to everybody. I've said that a couple of times. No. I stand by well, that. well, right here, if it, say we would have done an episode on Seven Brides. I mean, right there. Uh, that, just, you know, that just goes to show the, the difference in, you know, as time moves on, what age is better. Yeah, exactly.
1: And I think that's a great segue into best actor. Yes. <laughs> we have Dan O'Herlihy for Robinson Crusoe. James Mason for A Star is Born. Bing Crosby for The Country Girl, Humphrey Bogart for The Kane Mutiny, and the winner, Marlon Brando for On the Waterfront. And yeah, he's taking this. But yeah, the dude, Humphrey Bogart, Bing Crosby, and James Mason and Marlon Brando. I mean, I don't know, Dan O'Hurley, sorry, but those four are fucking big names <laughs> for that. That is a stacked category
0: truly truly and this this is you know the supporting actor and actor these can tend to be like holy hell cuz there's only five slots yeah and there's just it, it gets really competitive and there's a lot up at the top cuz there's so many roles written for these guys you know yeah. these these the, there's they're endless every year you have endless roles for great you know great roles for for these men to lead or support so yeah this is a heavy category
1: dude Dan O'Herlihy is Andrew Packard in Twin Peaks
0: Oh yeah. Okay. Oh, I was going to say, I recognize that name.
1: <laughs> Hell yes. Small world. Um, so I've seen, we watched the stars born for the, uh, Judy Garland episode of *Filmgasm*, and Dennis. James Mason is really fucking good in that. He's such a prick, such an awful person, Norman, Norman. ugh. And then Bogart in The Kane Mutiny really gives it his all. He plays such an understated performance of a man just stricken by PTSD and refusing to admit he's unsuitable for command. A broken man. And honestly, I think he would have taken this if Brando hadn't stepped up for On the
0: Waterfront. Uh. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. But Brando, there's there's like three or four scenes there that are like, they're all Hall of Fame. Yeah. So, yeah, they're unforgettable.
1: I think Bogart got his nomination for the courtroom scene where he finally unravels. I think yeah, that was for sure, for it. sure. Oh, and that takes us to Best Picture, where we have Three Coins in the Fountain, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, The Country Girl, The Cane Mutiny, and the winner on the waterfront. And uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I don't think this one's disputed at all.
0: No, yeah, not at all. It's through and through.
1: 1954, uh,
0: 1954, hands down on the waterfront. I, I I just really wish Rear uh, Rear Window was in there.
1: Me too. I wanted to see Three Coins in the Fountain and The Country Girl, but just wasn't feasible. Uh, I we tried to pick the you know I had access to Seven Brides for Seven Brothers and The Cane Mutiny, and uh, yeah, you know I just I didn't think The Country Girl I knew I wasn't gonna like because. I don't like that Grace Kelly defeated Judy Garland. I just don't. That's a hot button issue for me. So one day, I'll watch The Country Girl, but not today. And Three Coins in the Fountain, I just... I couldn't do another 50s love story.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no. Couldn't do it. No, no, yeah. Well, that's what you're talking about, the conveyor belt. Those are the films that are on the conveyor belt of old Hollywood. Just boom, 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 boom. And no, yeah, it's just, it, they're mostly not for me or, or for us. You know, they're not really our kind of movies.
1: They're not. And On the Waterfront very much is. And I knew that was going to be a great movie anyway. So it's it's nice having, you know, knowing you're going
0: into a classic and you're going to enjoy this. It's a nice feeling. Yeah, for sure. We're at, we're at Seven Brides. I was like, ah, we'll see what happens here. And sure enough, yeah, well, it just wasn't for me.
1: The second my mom started describing what the movie was, I'm like, I'm not going to like this at all. Oh, what do you mean they kidnap these women? What? what? <laughs> God. Um, so those are the film, those are the Oscars that it won. Best film editing, best art direction, best cinematography, best original screenplay, best director, best supporting actress, best actor, and best picture. It was nominated for four additional Oscars. So let's talk a bit about those. Best original score. Uh, Oh wait, well, best music score of a dramatic or comedy picture. And then there's best scoring of a musical picture. The scoring of Oscars used to be really weird and confusing. I think yeah. they had a separate category for musicals. Because this was back when every other fucking movie was a musical. <laughs> and so best music score of a dramatic or comedy picture. We've got The Silver Chalice by Franz Waxman, On the Waterfront by Leonard Bernstein, Genevieve by Larry Adler, The Kane Mutiny by Max Steiner. In the High and the Mighty by Dimitri Tomkin. And personally, I think I want to give this to the Kane Mutiny. That's fair.
0: That's fair. I I mean, I I really like uh I like Bernstein's work a lot. Yeah. Uh in the on the water front. But I yeah, that's totally fair. Both of those are great scores. I like the score in the Kane
1: Mutiny because it was very, you know, patriotic, very American, but also something subtly fractured about it. Yes. That I thought really worked for the movie. Uh yeah I, I really like the cane Mutiny. I don't know if I've come out and said that but I, I really like the cane Mutiny.
0: <laughs> it's it's a solid flick yeah I would have been totally fine talking about that as a movie on this podcast Well never say never you know there's
1: hundred there's almost a hundred years of film to go through here
0: <laughs> yeah no we definitely will uh, revisit it uh you know and when we come back around to the 50s we'll do a different year but you know when we come back to 1954 yeah. we could do cane Mutiny. Yeah, and we'll talk about these films again, but in a different light,
1: because I'm sure by then we'll be much more educated.
0: Exactly. Beauty. And we'll probably like On the Waterfront even more. Yes, indeed.
1: The last three Oscars are all Best Supporting Actor. (laughs) So, we have Tom Tully for The Kane Mutiny, Rod Steiger for On the Waterfront, Carl Malden for On the Waterfront, Lee J. Cobb for On the Waterfront, and the winner, Edmund O'Brien for the Barefoot Contessa. Now, I have not seen the Barefoot Contessa. I, cannot, I do not know if Edmund O'Brien deserved that award, but I got to say, this fucking belonged to Carl Malden. <laughs> okay,
0: okay, yeah, right? Yeah. I, I, thought, I thought the first time I saw this, I was like, oh man, Lee J. Cobb. No, 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 Carl Malden <laughs> <laughs> is going off. When he challenges everybody, you know, and he's—it's like as if he's in a church, and you know they're on these rafters and whatnot. That—that is a chilling, chilling scene. Yeah.
1: Well, just the fact that he's this priest who is like—he's standing up to the mob. He's standing up to the dock workers. I've never seen a priest more gung ho about protecting his flock. Like this dude will—he will mess a fucker up with a baseball bat to protect his people. I love this guy. Me too. He's going up to Brando and being like, what is wrong with you? Like, do the right thing, you fucking idiot. <laughs> the whole time. That's amazing. This dude was like, he was not your typical, you know, he wasn't Bing Crosby and going my way. Like, this dude is fucking, you know, priest with a shotgun. I love him.
0: Yeah, man. Yeah. Father Barry and Dugan are the two characters that this time around, I was like, man, I like these guys. <laughs> ah, Dugan, you're smelling like a walking distillery. <laughs>
1: That's not to say Rod Steiger and Lee J. Cobb didn't bring their A game because they were both fucking great, too.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, Rod Steiger, when he's in the car with Brando, that scene is fucking lights out.
1: Just knowing what he has to do and trying so hard not to do it. It's so devastating. These brothers just, you know, torn apart by poor decisions. Yeah,
0: man. Fucking great.
1: God, this movie. And Lee J. Cobb is such a great bad guy. This Johnny Friendly motherfucker.
0: You want the kid,
1: <laughs> and then we were like we talked about. Uh, we didn't really talk about it, but Lee J. Cobb was in The Exorcist. Yes, he's the the cop.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Lee, Lee J. Cobb, someone who's appeared on uh, the Filmgasm podcast before. Yeah, I love all these, you know, little connections we get. Yeah, film film connections are the best things, you know, ever. They they make they make the world go round. <laughs> <laughs> Not really, but <laughs> Lee J. Cobb, you know, in the in the last scene where he's screaming to the dock workers, like, where do you think you're going?
1: I'm, yeah, every, I'm every
0: one of you. Like, <sighs> I, Yeah, and he, he tells them, he's like, I'll have them working in no time. You know, he's like, come on, come on. <laughs> yeah, so good. Ah, and then for the
1: Kane Mutiny, Tom Tully is good. I don't, I wouldn't give it to him.
0: Uh, no, not against those three, no.
1: I do think I would give it to somebody from the Kane Mutiny. I would give it to um Robert Francis who played uh, Will, uh Keith.
0: I see I th- that. Yeah.
1: Just being this, you know, this new kid on the block who's, you know, having to figure out where his allegiances lie. I thought he did a fantastic job. I would also argue Van Johnson as uh Lieutenant Merrick. I thought he was fucking amazing. <sighs> yeah, gosh. I just I think Tom Tully was kind of a throwaway. I thought he was goofy and kind of inconsequential to the story. So I don't really know why he got nominated. It reminded me of Chill Wills getting nominated for the Alamo. <laughs> <laughs> nice call. <laughs> yeah, I haven't stopped thinking Alamo. about that bullshit
0: for a long time. <laughs> bullshit is a yeah, it's definitely a good way to put it. Ugh.
1: So on the waterfront has an IMDb score of 8.1, a whopping Rotten Tomatoes score of 99%. It was one of the first films ever put into the national film registry in 1989. And it's become an enduring American classic and one of Marlon Brando's greatest performances. And that is really saying something. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. Great performances kind of came natural to that guy. It's kind of weird. (laughs) He was so good. He didn't even really give a shit. He had his like cue cards taped up across the set for a lot of his films because he didn't want to memorize his lines. Like, that's what he did for The Godfather, and that's considered, you know, one of the greatest performances of all time. The guy yeah. just, he didn't give a fuck, and it showed, but he also, like, kind of get indirectly, like, gave a fuck. It's weird. Brando is yeah. such a mystery.
0: Yeah, he has a, he carries, like, a, a swagger about him that, uh, the gravitas that you just, you you don't, you really don't see a lot anymore, especially today. It's very rare to have uh some guys i would point to that have that kind of like you know of course Brad Pitt has had it for a while now uh Leonardo DiCaprio has it to an extent where you are just there in control of you when they're on the screen yeah and and Brando might be the best ever at doing that with with just his face yeah you 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 really don't need anything else you know you just need Brando's figure his hands in the pockets, you know, like walking. Yeah. And you're like, yep, yeah, this guy, yep, this guy's perfect.
1: Even in supporting roles, like in Superman, like as Jor-El, Brando just sells it. He's so good at just being like a presence.
0: Yeah, which is, you know, one of the things we love talking about here on the podcast is is acting. And he, he's certainly one of the best to do it, uh, from from my, my, in my opinion. And obviously, a lot of people's opinion. He fully immerses himself it's like you said it's like <laughs> it's like he doesn't care or doesn't sometimes doesn't want to be there he just does it just natural yeah. it's what he it's what he does it's just what he does he turned down he the waterfront
1: a, like three times
0: yeah 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 i read that earlier it's just cr- crazy and then we, we've talked about you know actors like you know on film gasm and oscar sunday like daniel day-lewis who take every little thing so so seriously and you know there's just different there's different ways of going about the craft
1: True. True. So would you say that on the waterfront is your favorite Brando
0: performance? 100%. Okay. All right. Love that commitment. Yeah. I would say this and then oof, uh, Apocalypse Now, Godfather, Streetcar Named Desire. Apocalypse Now. I forgot about Kurtz. Yeah. Those are my, those are my four favorite that I've seen. You know, there's so many, you know, uh, well, that, you know, I, I'm obsessed with like little statistics. I'm a big sports, big sports fan. Big, um, well, I say that I'm a big basketball and soccer fan. The other sports I know a little bit about, but those are my two. And so stats are big time for me. And so for Brando to do that four in a row is like, you know, it's obviously unheard of. And <laughs> now na- nowadays, guys don't have the balls to do that anymore. So, yeah, uh, you know, that's just how it is. You know, guys aren't doing four quality roles like that in four years in a row. That's just unheard of.
1: True. For you guys listening, uh, Brando's Oscar nominations are as follows. Uh, 1951's A Streetcar Named Desire. 1952's Viva Zapata. 1953's Julius Caesar. 1954's On the Waterfront, which he won. 1957's Sayonara, 1972's The Godfather, which he won but refused the award, 1972's Last Tango in Paris, and 1989's A Dry White Season, his only uh, nomination for supporting. And, uh, yeah, he he died in 2004 at age 80, and uh, he was acting like to the... He was in movies till the day he died, but at that point he just didn't give a fuck anymore. But, and I wish I had you know brando's like you know brando's balls so that when i get old i could just you know do whatever the fuck i wanted and nobody cared
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah he's he's pretty awesome
1: (laughs) on the set of the score which was his last movie with edward norton yeah
0: yeah crazy crazy
1: movie what a cast but he just like he refused to wear pants because he was in his 80s and he didn't give a shit like, I'm Marlon Brando, the most famous actor of all time. I'm not wearing pants. What are you going to do? Pick me off the set?
0: <laughs> this is how I'm comfortable, okay? Yeah. Goddamn, I'm, I'm not ashamed or any clothes that. at all. I'm not ashamed of what i done, okay?
1: <laughs> There's a few things he fucking should be ashamed
0: of, but... Oh, my God. Yeah.
1: Like, one day I do want to do uh, Last Tango in Paris so we can visit that oh, shit yeah. show.
0: Yeah. You know, I... I I like I don't I don't mind saying that I I really like like the like erotic thriller like genre like subgenre and that's yeah. definitely looked at as one of those weird ones that like totes the line and I uh, yeah, yeah I need to see I need to see that movie <laughs> just just to have an opinion
1: <laughs> I've heard some horrific stories from that set
0: Yeah yeah no kidding well you know um you talk about you know how, how stuff changes and one thing that's good about like social media and all that is you just can't get away with shit. <laughs> yeah. True. You know, it's a lot it's a lot harder to get away with shit, you know, where men could kind of just do whatever the fuck they wanted for so long on on set when they, you know, behind closed doors and it's truly disgusting. So it's nice to find, you know, the random pieces of good in Hollywood, but god, it's it's not a lot. Speaking of, how about that
1: film that Affleck's doing about the making of Chinatown?
0: Yo, whoa yeah that's pretty that's a mind fuck yeah oh my God. I think it's called the big Goodbye or something like that something like that yeah, yeah.
1: i'm I'm in one hundred percent I wonder who's gonna play jack
0: well, yeah, of course we're in you know I mean <laughs> it's fucking Chinatown, one of the coolest movies you know uh from the seventies for sure, yeah, I
1: love that we've gotten to that point where we're making movies about the making of movies
0: <laughs> right yeah we we've just talked about recently that stupid fucking uh, netflix show about uh nurse ratchet from one of the cuckoo's nest you know so we're having like these prequels that nobody needs that are like mini series what the hell do we need 8 episodes about that for and then yeah it's movies about the making of movies <laughs> just recycling stuff you know just not enough new ideas i guess <laughs> it's like we're refusing to buy new pants and we're just putting
1: on the same pair of pants for like the sixth day in a row which, feels
0: like me. which we should have just be. We should just be like Brando and just not wear pants.
1: Yeah, don't wear pants. The brand, you know, live life the Marlon Brando way and just say fuck it.
0: <laughs> so
1: what? Who cares? Yeah. God. <laughs> don't do that. Don't live life the Marlon Brando way. You won't get very far.
0: No. You're not Brando. <laughs> no, you simply cannot do what he does. No.
1: Nope. And people, God knows people have tried so let's get into the plot of on the waterfront. We meet Terry Malloy. He's a former boxer, a prize fighter, had a chance at the title, was forced to take a dive and has now been just working for the mob at, on the waterfront. He's, uh, he's leaving the office of Johnny friendly, the head of the local dock workers union, and also the mob boss who runs this joint. And, uh, Terry then goes to the apartment of Joey Doyle, another dock worker, calls him out, says he found one of Joey's carrier pigeons. And uh, Joey accepts and tells Terry to meet him on the roof of the tenement. And Terry looks up and sees two guys waiting for Joey on the roof. (sighs) Terry goes to Friendly's bar, where all the dock workers kind of hang out, and uh, stands outside with his brother Charlie and uh, Truck and Tilio, two of Johnny Friendly's enforcers. And Charlie asks him if Doyle went to the roof. And Terry says he did. And then we hear a scream, and Joey is tossed off the roof. And everyone accepts that Joey slipped and fell, because you, know, you don't question this, the, the way things go in this neighborhood. And Terry is kind of horrified, because he thought that Joey was just going to get a talking to and maybe get smacked around a little. He didn't think they were going to kill him. And now he feels guilty about this. And this kind of plants the idea in Terry's head of, you know, what have I done with my life? And uh, <laughs> Doyle was planning to testify to the Waterfront Crime Commission. And that was against Johnny Friendly. and Not what he wanted. Would have put him in a bind. And uh, Joey was well-liked in the neighborhood. So this hurts a lot of people, including Joey's sister, uh, Edie, who in her first... Scene really like brings it home. even Marie Saint <laughs> just finding Terry, you know Joey dead. It's crazy. Um, yeah, it's a shame they call him a canary, which is you know some, a rat. Somebody who's going to sing, he's going to snitch on them. In the bar, Terry's upset. One of Friendly's cronies, Skins, drops by with money from a payoff. But he comes up short, so Friendly searches the man, comes up with the money, and throws him out. Says, don't you come here no more. It's a great introduction to Johnny Friendly and just how he runs the waterfront. Like, this is a man who's not questioned. This is a man who's been in power for a while, and everyone's fucking terrified of him.
0: Yeah, d d <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Deaf and dumb. <laughs> I love the, the, uh, the lingo. Yeah. We, uh, I think, I think, uh, yeah, it was the first episode when we talked about Pulp Fiction, something that I adore about that movie that I think on the Waterford probably did, you know, obviously it's 40 years earlier, but I think, I think the way the dialogue, how sharp it is and how cool uh, I just imagine if I were, if I were like, you know, 16, 17 in 1954 and I saw that movie, I'd be like, Oh fuck. I want to work on the docks. You know, I just, I, I would want to be in that environment. And, there's just, that's that's the power of the script. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And I like I like how this, you know, Terry isn't set up to be this, like, infallible, you know, unshakable gangster. He's this guy, like, you know, he's a dock worker who's like, what? They killed my friend? Oh, my God. Like, he's hurt by this. He's like, I didn't want that to happen. Like, your first inst- like the first thing you learn about Terry is that he's a vulnerable person. I love that. Like Brando is, uh, you know, he's at this point, he was kind of a heartthrob. He was known for playing, you know, larger than life characters. And Terry Malloy is really like a down to earth, relatable guy who just, you know, he goes to the normal spectrum of human feelings. I love that We see him cry in this movie. Yeah. It's unheard of at this point. You know, your leading men were, you know, men were manly sons of bitches who didn't cry. They didn't like, they slapped women. Like they were just, you know, they were James Bond basically all the time. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so when you have a guy with the gravitas that breaks himself down is like ah,
1: it's so powerful. Yeah, absolutely, man, it's awesome.
0: Uh oh,
1: so Terry uh, Friendly sees that Terry's upset, and he starts lecturing him on you know how you know these things happen. Violence is necessary. People have to they gotta get roughed up, and if they sing, they gotta go. There's no other way around it. They have to go, or they're gonna damage everybody. And Terry's like, "Yeah, all right." <laughs> so I don't know about that, Johnny." And Johnny also admits to ordering Joey Doyle's murder, and uh, for setting Doyle up, Johnny tells his foreman, Big Mac, to give Terry a cushy job during the next day's shift. So since Terry played ball, he'd have to do you know a day's work. He just goes gets the cushy job and hangs out while he collects a paycheck. out in the alley where Joey was thrown. His sister, Edie, and Father Barry, the local Catholic priest, look over the body. Father Barry starts giving the body last rites. Edie angrily pleases other people in the neighborhood about why this happened. She knows, you know, he had carrier pigeons up there. He knew that roof. He wasn't just going to fall off. He was killed. She knows that, and she wants people to speak up about it. But nobody in this neighborhood is going to say shit. Because they're all terrified and friendly. And... uh Edie also you know, becomes angry with Father Barry saying he doesn't really know about the violence in the area because he's too busy running his church to actually visit the waterfront. He doesn't know his own people. His own constituency. It's the right word, right? Yeah. 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 I usually hear that in return like in terms of politics. I don't know if that works in the religious <laughs> sense, but I'll fucking take it. Sure. Congregation. That's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> Not constituency. <laughs> congregation. Constituency. I knew mm. something was wrong there.
0: Shallow and pedantic.
1: <laughs> I I talk good.
0: Yeah, I, I read that in a book. <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> it's a metaphor, but it really happened.
1: So the next the next day, the dock workers are gathered at the pier. Big Mac runs a system where tags are given to selected men to work the ship. Not everybody works every day. And most of the time, it's the people who Johnny Friendly kind of says, you know, give this guy a gig today. He runs everything. So if, you're, if you play ball with Johnny, you're going to work. If you don't, you probably aren't going to work. Edie's there with Father Barry, who tells her that she was right. He came down to see how bad the situation is. We meet Pop Doyle, Edie's father, who's this elderly cranky son of a bitch. And uh, he shows up because he needs to earn money for his son's funeral. How fucked up is that?
0: Yeah, that, uh, yeah, man, such an authentic character he is when he's just kind of walking and he's like, oh, yeah, you know, just the way he's answering these questions. These guys are like, oh, go home, you know, go, go rest up or whatever. And he's like, oh, you know, someone's got to pay for the funeral. You're like, Jesus, dude, these characters are so real. Ugh. He's working on the docks to pay money,
1: to get money for his son's funeral, and he's working for the man who killed him. Yeah. Holy shit. Welcome to America. He gives his dead son's coat to another worker, uh, K.O. Dugan, who accepts it. (laughs) Hey, I
0: got a coat for you. God, Yeah. (laughs) That's the good thing about a small man and a big coat. (laughs) (laughs) While waiting for his
1: name to be called, Terry is approached by two officials from the Waterfront Crime Commission. One of them recognizes Terry from his boxing days and asks him if he's going to testify to the commission about Joey's murder and about Johnny. And Terry is confrontational from the beginning because you can't look like you're playing ball with these guys. You got to tell them to piss off or else people are going to talk. And that's what he does. He basically says, you know, take a hike. Meh. And <laughs> the other man tells Terry, like, we'll subpoena you if we have to. He's like, yeah, you go do that. You go get a subpoena. <laughs> <laughs> I'm invincible. I'm Terry. Come on. Ugh. Matt calls out the names of the men who get regular work. Terry's among them. The remaining tags are passed out at, by Mac, and when the men who aren't chosen become angry with him, Mac throws the tags behind him, and a riot breaks out. It reminded me of Jingle All the Way with the little balls.
0: Yes. Yes. <laughs>
1: no such thing as order when people are desperate.
0: No, just, just go to, you know, Target or wherever on Black Friday. Ugh. Black Friday Terrible. this year, if it even happens, is going to be a fucking shit show. My God. Yeah, if it even happens, you're right. But just, it's just one of the, one of the worst days. So, yeah. You know, it's,
1: know. it's terrifying in a normal year, but this year, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I mean, Walmart's already said they're not having it. Good. Um, so, <clears throat> the riot breaks out. Edie tries to grab a tag for her father. Terry grabs it first, won't give it to Edie. And one of the other men points out to Terry that she's Joey's sister. He immediately looks like, ah shit well here <laughs> he feels bad it's like i was fucking with her i shouldn't have been
0: fantastic yeah
1: he's already feeling guilty this just adds to that <laughs> he gives it to her father and um father pop, the pop uh, talks to father barry and says like why are you letting edie witness this she shouldn't be seeing anything like this she should be watching good things like <laughs> why is he, how is that the father's fault like, shouldn't pop? it pops her dad. Shouldn't he be the one who says, like, you shouldn't be here?
0: Yeah, you would think. You would think. How is this in any way the
1: fault of the Catholic priest? I, I don't know. <laughs> oh. So, uh, the men, uh, the other men are disheartened. Father Barry tells him that no, un- no real union would ever let anything like this happen. This is fucked up. This is wrong. Things need to change. And uh, the man explained how a trigger local works. Anyone who gets out of line is either ostracized or eliminated by Johnny. So if you step up against anything, Johnny, he'll, he takes your job. And then if you still make a fuss, he just kills you. <laughs> Crazy. Can you? I can't imagine working in this kind of like, you know, constantly afraid for my life and my job. Uh. <laughs> They also explain that meetings among union members are impossible since Johnny has spies everywhere. So they can't even meet to talk about what, you know, change. So Barry suggests they meet in the basement of the church. In the ship's hold, Terry is loafing on a pile of sacks, just kind of hanging around, when his brother, Charlie the Gent, Johnny's right hand man, and that's uh, Rod Steiger, finds him, gives him a small job. He wants Terry to be the spy at the church. <laughs> And Terry's reluctant, but Charlie's like, hey, we did a lot for you. Why don't you do a little for us? And Terry's like, Ugh, all right, fine, Charlie. Yeah, I hate that. You know, like they, they killed one of his friends, and then they're like, Hey, we help you. Why don't you help us?
0: Mob. Yeah. Man. <laughs> no, we control you. Now
1: you yeah. help us. Like it's ever a fucking choice. Yeah. At the church that night, Father Barry calls a meeting to order, notices there's 12 people there most people didn't show up because they were terrified and he explains to the men what they already know working conditions are bad the union's powerless as long as Friendly's running the place barry also suggests that if they can talk openly about why joey doyle was murdered they might make some progress e. asks joey's best friend jimmy to say something but he turns her down barry tells him that the only way they're going to make better lives for themselves is to stand up to johnny friendly One of the tougher men in the crowd, K.O. Dugan, tells Barry that the rule is everyone is D&D, deaf and dumb. You don't talk. You don't see anything. Dugan also noticed Terry sitting in one of the pews, recognizes him as Charlie's brother and a spy. He's like, what are you doing here? Like, he's just sitting there kind of with his legs, like with his feet up on a pew, like a a super disrespectful way to sit in a church. Yeah. and He's just like, what? (laughs) I'm Terry. Tony Malloy. <laughs> I was a contender. So <laughs> uh, so despite his attempts at, you know, kind of, you know, coaching the men, he can't do it. Barry's, you know, unable to convince anybody to stand, stand up. And as they call the meeting to an end with a prayer, the window is smashed in and Johnny's men have surrounded the church with clubs. They're going to fuck things up. Anyone who tries to escape is beaten severely. Terry takes Edie out of the church safely. Dugan, while trying to escape, is beaten bloody, but is rescued by Father Barry, who starts beating punching people. Love that.
0: Yeah, no kidding. I wish he was doing that more of that.
1: <laughs> God, Carl Malden should have taken home
0: best supporting actor.
1: He really should have. That bothers me.
0: Yeah, I know. That's just one of those one of those Oscars that would be like one of my personal favorite wins if he would have gotten it. Ah. Um,
1: <laughs> So Barry asks Dugan if he still wants to be D <laughs> and D seems to get through to Dugan. who has been just beaten half to death. And uh, Dugan says he'll testify as long as he's got Barry in his corner. Barry is willing to stand up to Johnny. So we'll do. And that comes back to bite both of them later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So Dugan also warns Barry, you know, Johnny's not going to hesitate to lean on a priest. Like if he's, you know, all the crazy shit he's willing to do, you think a priest is off limits for him? No, no, no. <laughs> Ooh, In the park in front of the church, Terry sees Edie, you know, gets her out of the area safely. They start talking. A homeless man confronts them, asks ask him for money. And Terry's like, get out of here. <laughs> and the man recognizes them both. He starts talking about Joey's death and how Terry set him up. And Terry tells him, yells at him to leave. I love that this random homeless guy is like, "Hey, you're Terry. You're the guy who set up Joey Doyle. Like, how the fuck does he know that?"
0: (laughs) Yeah, and he's like, "Yeah, he's calling me a bum, huh?" Yeah, (laughs) so
1: good. I love that that was like the worst thing you could call somebody in the fifties was a bum.
0: Yeah, (laughs) I'm a bum. Come on,
1: (laughs) I ain't no, I ain't no bum. Yeah. (laughs) When she gets home, Edie finds her father packing her things. Edie's a student at a local, um, an upstate Catholic college. She was visiting her family, and Pop tells her that she needs to go because the neighborhood's getting too violent. He also tells her that he knows she was with Terry Malloy, and she, she, you know, Terry's connected to Johnny Friendly. He's like, you know, you shouldn't be out with him. You should be with a like, good boy. And Edie's like, I'm not leaving until I know why Joey died, so you can just stick it. <laughs> she didn't say stick that. It, but. Stick it to the mind. <laughs> Oh, my God. I'm just picturing Jack Black just, like, walking in the background, not even saying anything, just being like.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's a rare blood disease. (laughs) Stick it to the moniosis. They're terminal. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, That should have been out for some Oscars. Jesus Christ. Best, yeah. I'm glad Jack
1: Black was up for a globe. You know, I'll take that yeah that's something did i ever tell you this i don't know segue we're gonna just abandon on the waterfront for like three minutes <laughs> so um sean my uncle was at um i think he was he was either at the premiere of school of rock or like invited to the after party and he uh, he went bowling jack black oh my god yeah apparently jack black's super nice who would have thought? That's, I that,
0: yeah, I, I believe it. That's so fucking metal, man. Bowling know, with right? track black. Uh, I love it. I love it.
1: Fucking awesome. So on the roof of the building, Terry is tending to Joey's carrier pigeons. He feels obligated. And uh, he talks to a couple of the kids from the neighborhood who helped Terry with the coop. And these kids are super judgmental. They're like, you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't talk rat, would you? And Terry's like, no, of course. And later on, the, the kids are like, how could you do this to Johnny? <laughs> like they have any fucking stake in <laughs> oh, this? Kids made me laugh. <laughs> oh. uh, Edie's over Joey's coop. Terry goes to her. They talk for a while about pigeons and hawks. Terry offered, you know, asked her out for a drink at a local bar. She accepts while they talk. She tells Terry of her interest in solving Joey's murder. Terry warns her to stop snooping around because it could be dangerous. He's kind of like, why are we still on this? <laughs> That's old news. Like, it's not her brother. <laughs> I love that, like, that brief moment of just complete uh, numbness. <laughs> He's just like, what? We're still talking about this? <laughs> it's like, goddamn right. <laughs> oh. um, they dance for a while at a wedding that just happens to be in the bar. Uh, One of Johnny's men uh, tells him that Johnny wants to meet with him. Terry tells him he's going to go when he's ready. He's going to stand up a little bit. Terry also runs into one of the crime commission agents who gives him a subpoena. Terry rips it up, refusing to eat cheese. (laughs) He's no rat. (laughs) Uh, I love it. Oh, So good. Later, Terry walks home, gets stopped by Johnny and Charlie. Johnny asks Terry about the church meeting. Terry tells him it was run by Father Barry, that very little was discussed about Johnny. He doesn't have any real support. He's not a threat. Johnny Counters tells Terry that Dugan had gone to the crime commission and gave a sworn statement about Johnny's union corruption. Johnny suggests they use their muscle to eliminate Dugan. He also feels Terry didn't do his job fully and tells him he won't have his cushy job in the yard anymore if he's not playing ball. He's going to go back to work in the hole. Charlie admonishes Terry about his budding relationship with Edie Doyle, saying it's unhealthy for him to be dating the sister of the man he killed. And I agree with that. That's that's fucked up. You know what it reminded me immediately of the town.
0: It's unhealthy. Yeah, prob- probably not the best there. You know, uh, yeah, I love the town. Two thousand ten classic. Uh, you you definitely think of the scene where you know Ben Affleck grabs Jeremy Renner's neck to hide it from hiding from her as he, as they're having like lunch and you, yeah you, you definitely get those vibes. Like movies like on the waterfront certainly have those tropes that inspired so many movies.
1: I'm going to put this whole fucking town to my rear view. Sorry. I had to get that out. You think,
0: you think you're better than me? <laughs> oh, Boston accent. I love it. It's God, I love the town. <laughs> so good. Great movie.
1: The next day, Terry's working with Dugan in the ship's hold, unloading crates of Irish whiskey. Terry feels the need to warn him about Johnny's intentions, but you know, Dugan ignores him. He's he's snaking bottles of whiskey. He's got him in his jacket, and uh, one of the pallets loaded with crates is hoisted out. The crane operator fucking drops it on Dugan and smashes him to pieces with crates of whiskey, making it look like an accident. But Terry knows it's not an accident no yeah yeah jesus death by whiskey not like in the worst way
0: (laughs) yeah and uh, that scene's really impressive it happens pretty abruptly there and dugan dugan's just making jokes about having that big jacket and sticking whiskey in there (laughs) and bam then he's gone yep
1: after his body is uncovered father barry gives a speech to the entire workforce telling them that johnny and his men are using them for cheap labor and clearly killing them when it suits them So why should they have any loyalty to these people? And Johnny's men start throwing rotten fruit at him and cans and shit, but he keeps talking because father Barry's resolve is strong. He cares about these men. He is a shepherd protecting his flock. One of the men, Tilio, is about to throw something when Terry stops him and punches him out. One of the men gives Joey's jacket back to Edie. She later gives it to Terry. Dugan's body's out of the ho- hoisted out of the hold. Barry and Pop Doyle riding pa- the pallet. Now, Father Barry is you know, particularly affected by this because he promised Dugan he was going to see this through to the end. They were going to be partners. He was going to have his back. And now Dugan's dead. Father, De- Father Barry has a debt to pay. And he's going to see this through to the end for Dugan. Mm. This movie just, you know, it, imp- it impassions you, you know? It's like, yeah, keep- you get into
0: it. Yeah, they just keep stacking little shit on top of each other. You know, uh, just doing what classic films do. Damn straight. Damn straight.
1: Terry is now having serious problems with his conscience. He he doesn't know what side to choose here. So he meets with Father Barry, and he tells Barry he might testify to the crime commission, but he doesn't want to implicate his brother or his friends. He tells the priest that he's the one who set up Joey Doyle to be killed. Barry tells Terry that his loyalty to Charlie and Johnny's misplaced and that they're using him just like they've always used him. They ruined Terry's life. They took away his chance to be a contender and he's stuck in this, you know, at the bottom rung of the totem pole. Now he'll always be there. And he tells Terry that a good step to take would be to confess everything to Edie. And Edie was coming to see Barry herself and Barry convinces Terry to tell her. And it's fucking horrible. Cause he tells her, yeah, I'm responsible for your brother's death but a foghorn wipes out everything else he was going to say. So that's all she hears. And she's horrified and she bolts.
0: (laughs) I love that. I love that scene, that whole part when he's walking with Barry and then Barry's like, lights the cigarette and he's like, well, I was going to meet Edie here anyway. And so the way the camera kind of shifts to where you're with Barry still, and then Brando starts running to kind of meet her. And then the camera is just like, all right, now we'll go over there. It Kind of like uh, the, the tension and the anticipation of, come on, camera, get over there. And then when you finally get over there to see them talking, the foghorn. <laughs> the foghorn happens. This is, this is stuff you just don't see in, in many movies, period, let alone the 50s, right? Where uh, really, really, you know, climactic, dramatic scene. Between you know these two characters who are kind of falling for each other, uh, are having this ultimate difference uh, because of the essential part of the plot in the movie. It's it's really a breathtaking scene and so essential to the movie.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because it completely obliterates Terry and Edie's relationship just immediately. Because all Edie hears is "You killed my brother." Exactly.
0: Yeah. God, dude, that all the little touches and all and every part of that is, you know, that's why we watch movies. <laughs> yeah
1: man I love these first time watches where I can you know I become you know I really get into a new story It's it feels great it's a good feeling yeah
0: it's, it is a very good feeling
1: mm-hmm. Terry goes to check on the pigeons and he sees one of the men from the crime commission who approached him on the docks Terry asks the advice of one of the boys who hangs out with him on the roof about testifying and the kids you know he says it's not a good idea to get, get involved since you know Terry founded the gang that the kid is now a member oh. of Jesus. Ugh. And um, the officer tries to talk to Terry, but he's mostly unsuccessful until he mentions the fight Terry had boxed in years before against a guy named Wilson. And Terry is suddenly quite chatty. He starts talking about the punches he threw and how he was, you know, got we got Wilson on the ropes. <laughs> and uh, he th- he hints that you know he threw the fight so Charlie, Johnny, and their friends could. You know, could win a huge bet by betting on Wilson. He tells the officer straight out that he would have beaten Wilson.
0: Oh, yeah, I love love that, dude. That confidence when he's like, I had him. I had him. Bam, 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 bam. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God, I love that. I love that confidence. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. cool. Well,
1: it also brings Terry back to a mindset of, like, I had that and they took it from me. So now he's thinking about, you know, he's thinking about himself for the first time in a long time. Reflecting, yeah. Like, what would I be today if I'd won that fight? (sighs) Sad. At Johnny's office, one of Johnny's spies reports that he saw Terry talking to the cop. Charlie tries to defend Terry, saying, you know, Edie has Terry's emotions all mixed up, but Johnny's like, no, no, no. I want you to go talk to him. And if Terry won't dummy up, then Charlie was gonna, he's gonna take, You're gonna take him down to Jerry. And Charlie's like, Please don't do this. Don't make me don't make me drive my brother to his death. And uh Johnny refuses to listen. All he hears is possible rat investigate. And Charlie's now troubled and he leaves Johnny's office to go find Terry. It's a great performance for Rod Steiger because he's trying so hard to save his brother, but also not look weak in front of Johnny. And yeah, exactly. It's that great balance that he brings to it where he's just you just believe him when he's like pleading like He's my brother. Don't make me do this.
0: Yes, please.
1: Damn, man, this movie.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we needed this to unpack it. It is a brilliant movie.
1: (laughs) Mm. Charlie picks up Terry in a taxi, and they have a lengthy conversation. where Charlie asks Terry about the subpoena, and if he plans to rat out Johnny in court, Terry still doesn't really know. He's undecided. And Charlie reminds him about everything that he and Johnny have done for him over the years, offers him a cushy job at the pier, and he begs him, take the job, Terry. Please take the job. And, uh, yeah, Charlie tells Terry, you better make up your mind before we get to Jerry G's place. And then Charlie pulls a gun on him. <laughs> Terry's stunned that, you know, this would, he's like, come on, Charlie, like, put that away. Don't, don't be that. Charlie comes to his senses, starts breaking down. And he recounts how Terry was once, you know, a great athlete and he had a whole career ahead of him and says that Terry had a shitty manager who was responsible for ruining the career he might have had as a boxer. Terry counters saying that Charlie himself was responsible for the downfall, betting on Wilson, destroying Terry's shot. And we get a line that's considered one of the most famous movie quotes of all time. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody instead of a bum, which is what I am, let's face it. Ah, what a reflective moment. It's a moment where he realizes I have nothing and it's your fault. <laughs> oh, so powerful. I knew, I knew that line. I've heard that line for years, but I never understood the emotional significance of it. And I'm so glad I do now. Context. <laughs> yeah, man. Really important. Oh. So Charlie realizes, you know, he's the bad guy. He's treated his brother like shit <coughs> and he gives Terry the gun and tells him you're going to need it. Tells, orders the driver to pull out, uh, pull over. Terry gets out of the car. The driver's one of Johnny's spies, and he pulls into Jerry G's place. So now Charlie's on the on the chopping block. <laughs> he chose a side, and Johnny's gonna make him pay for that. <sighs> Terry goes to Edie's apartment. Edie refuses to open the door for him, and Terry just fucking breaks in, and uh, grabs her and starts kissing her, and she starts kissing back. It's uh it's a little awkward now. Uh a little rapey, but I mean she does love him, I think. I think she's very conflicted about the way she feels for Terry. Uh <laughs> yeah, but it is really fucked up that he just breaks into her apartment and starts kissing her forcibly.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's definitely the the to me the only thing that hasn't aged very well, but but it's not it's not crazy or anything it's not something that kind of shocks you it's just like oh did we really need that yeah i agree
1: uh a voice calls to terry from the alley below telling him his brother's there and wants to see him terry rushes down to the alley begins to walk towards the voice E follows stopping to talk to one of her neighbors who mentions her own son was killed when he went looking for a man who was calling him into the alley this is a mob trick Edie runs to Terry. A truck starts up, rushes towards them both, almost kills them. Terry breaks the window of a nearby door. They jump out of the way. Terry looks at the truck as it speeds off, sees his brother hanging by a longshoreman longshoreman hook, piercing his coat. They killed Terry. He's been shot to death and strung up in an alley as a warning. Damn, because of this, Johnny killed his right-hand man. Yeah. Unstable son of a bitch. Terry's arms bleeding from the broken glass. He hauls his brother down and is like on the verge of tears. Tells Edie to get father Barry and to stay with Charlie. And when he says stay with, like, don't leave him too long. His voice breaks. And it's, just, oh my God. It's such a great little bit there when his voice breaks. Cause it's, you know, it humanizes these people. I, I love when people are humanized in larger than life movies like this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Comes back to the writing, comes back to the delivery of, you know, these actors. And when you have that kind of talent, you know, it's all clicking at the same time. It's just, it, it on the waterfront has a few of those moments where like, if I'm watching, say if I'm watching a sport, if I'm watching basketball and there's a guy doing stuff and he's just unstoppable, I usually just kind of start smiling. And Brando does a few things in this movie where it may be a really sad moment, but it, I'm just kind of smiling because I'm like, this is this is why I watch this stuff over and over and over every day, watching movies and dedicating so much time to it. Like, this is the shit you search for. These, these monumental, just dramatic, epic pieces where everything is clicking, you know, just, just right, just right at all times. And it doesn't linger too long on the waterfront, never... Never takes itself too, too seriously and never goes. It it stays tight, stays where it needs to be. And uh, every scene is like essential, except for that one that we just brought up. Uh, It really, really has very, very few little errors throughout it. It's one of those perfect movies. Truly. And
1: I love that Terry immediately goes to Friendly's bar with a gun and just like, I want to see Johnny. Hell yes, dude. (laughs) Come on. Let's go, Johnny. Let's go. Where is he? I want to see him. Tilio shows up. Terry orders him to stay. Father Barry then shows up, and Terry remains, you know, defensive with the pistol. Barry tells him to give it up. Terry tells Barry, a Catholic priest, to go to hell. <laughs> yeah. And Barry's yeah. like, what did you just say? And hits him. <laughs> and Terry's hostages escape. The priest fucking punches him for this. Oh my God. <laughs> it's amazing. You don't see priests like this ever in movies. No. God, no. <laughs> oh. Terry starts shouting about how it's, this isn't Barry's concern, and Barry tells him that shooting Johnny would be useless, because the law would favor Johnny. Because on paper, technically speaking, Johnny's not doing anything illegal. It's all about testimony. And Barry tells, you know, he tells him that the, the best thing he can do to avenge his brother's murder is testify in court, strip Johnny of his power, put him in jail. It's the best thing you can do. Tells Terry to get rid of the gun, unless he's too cowardly to do it. <laughs> he gives Terry a beer. Terry takes a sip, throws the pistol at a picture of Johnny. And at first, I thought that was the end of the movie. I was like, no. <laughs> I, re- I thought that was the end. Thank God I was wrong. Because <laughs> Terry does testify. He testifies about Joey's murder. And he grills, he, um, he talks about how he's the last person to see Joey alive. Uh, Johnny Friendly angrily said it was necessary to have Joey killed. In another office, a man watches the hearings on TV, hears Terry's testimony, and he shuts the TV off and says he's not going to accept any calls from Johnny Friendly.
0: Who, who, do you, who was that supposed to be? It was a little unclear on that. I, I'm, not, I, I'm not sure. I was actually going to ask you the same thing. No. Um, is, it, is it a play? You know, because there's, there's very few times in this movie that we're at, in any perspective outside of these, these very few characters, yeah. So is that is that just for relatability, or Maybe that's is that supposed to
1: be like a like a Jimmy Hoffa or an Al Capone, like some big up mob boss that Johnny reported to, and he's like, nope, now he's dead weight, he's dangerous, don't talk to him. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. And um, after Terry's done with the uh, with his testimony, he walks past Johnny, and Johnny in court screams at him, "You're dead!" and like tries to grab him.
0: <laughs> like, holy shit man in court what does he he say he's like from i think he says like from from boston to new orleans you won't work on like any of those docs oh my god dude jesus could you
1: look more guilty i mean jesus christ (laughs) keep your cool man uh you can kill someone you can't lie for 20 minutes about it yeah good god so terry goes home followed by a couple cops He says, you know, stop following me. They scoff. They're like, yeah, well, we're kind of your only option. If when, like when Johnny comes to kill you, not if, when. So yeah, he passes a friend on the stairs who refuses to talk to him. He's dead to the waterfront. Like he, you know, he's a canary. He betrayed everybody in their eyes. And uh, in his apartment, Edie's waiting. Terry talks about losing his friends as he testified and Edie asks, you know, if, if they're going to turn on you like this, were they ever your friends in the first place? It's a good point. Terry goes up to the roof and finds that Tommy, the kid, killed all of his pigeons. Jesus. it's dark. Punk-ass kid. And Terry's like, why? Why would they do this? Like, he's hurt by this big time. And uh, Edie suggests that they leave the waterfront, go to a farm out west where they'll be left alone. Terry notices a ship coming into Johnny's pier, grabs his hook, Don's Joey's jacket goes to the pier. He's going to go to fucking work, even if he has to die for it. And (laughs) I love it. Like, he yells, Tommy yells, like, you rat. Like, Tommy really is hurt by this. This kid. God damn it. So at the pier, Terry receives a pretty cold shoulder from his former friends. Big Mac calls the workers in. (laughs) Gives everyone a job except Terry. Terry suggests, you know, you're one man short. So Mac grabs a homeless man. He's like, hey, you you want a job? (laughs) Cold shit, man. Cold shit. Terry becomes enraged, marches down to the gangplank to John Friendly's office, throws his hook at the door. Johnny emerges, knows that attacking Terry in public would get him into deep trouble. He tells Terry to get lost. Terry starts to berate Johnny openly, telling him he's proud that he testified. Especially for, kid, you know, he, he's, he's happy. Like, he's in control of his own life for the first time ever, and he would do it again in a heartbeat. <laughs> Johnny goads Terry into charging him. The two start fighting. When it becomes obvious that Terry's going to beat the shit out of Johnny, he calls in his goons to help, and they beat the shit out of Terry. What a coward. Yeah. Douche. <laughs> hmm And they really just wreck Terry. I thought they killed him.
0: Oh, for sure. The first time I saw this movie, I was like, yeah, he's dead. There's no doubt that guy's dead. He's going to be floating in the water and the movie's going to end. Oh, man. Can you imagine? That would have broke my fucking heart. Yeah, I know. This movie does break your heart a few times.
1: So Father Barry and Edie arrive on the scene, just as Johnny orders his thugs to stop. The owner of the ship uh, that arrived demands to know when the men are going to start unloading the cargo. I love that. guy's getting beat to hell over here and the guy's like, hey, I'm losing money. (laughs) Is somebody gonna get to work here?
0: Yeah.
1: Oh, <laughs> uh, Johnny starts muscling his way through the crowd, ordering the you know the, the people to start working. He gets to Pop Doyle. He grabs him. Pops like you've been pushing me around all my life, and he chucks Johnny into the water. <laughs> oh, and everyone cheers. Suddenly Terry's a martyr. <laughs> <laughs> He's the only one who actually stood up to, to Johnny. He proved it was possible. Now everyone realizes maybe we don't need him;
0: he needs us. Yeah, exactly. Strength in numbers, classic. Very <laughs> much, you know. This is this is great stuff. That's you know, history repeats itself over and over, whether it be on a big scale or a small scale. You know, you could look at, you know, people getting fed up with someone, you know, a huge dictator, or you can look at like fucking, you know, Hopper on a Bug's Life, who has control in the. Then all the ants realize, "Oh my God, there's so many of us. Let's just fucking fight back!" Great call, man. Oh, oh and, and, life. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's like a, one of the beautiful part uh, ways to tell stories in film is, you know, when the little guys all band together, they can be bigger than the one big guy. So exactly. Yeah, that's that's like one of the greatest, you know, ways to tell stories.
1: Straight up. So now. A few of the men go find Terry. See, he's been badly beaten. He's barely conscious. Father Barry encourages him to get up and walk to the pier to go to work. He says that if the men see Terry walk into that building, then they will feel, you know, powerful. They'll feel like they have, you know, they can do this. And he tells Terry that Johnny's taking bets that he's not going to get up. (laughs) Uh, If he does, the other men are going to follow him. They're going to oust Johnny as the leader. Terry stumbles a bit, but he stands up and he walks to the end of the pier, into the, into the uh, warehouse. And as, he, as he does, all the men start following Terry. And Johnny Friendly's in the middle of the crowd going, I'm going to remember you. I'm going to remember all of you. Who do you think you are? I run, this, I run this pier. And nobody's listening to him. He has lost all his power. And Terry goes to work. <laughs> Roll credits.
0: <laughs> the end. Great movie, man. God damn. Yeah, super, super good. I I would give it a nine. It's like right there. I think if I see it a few more times, I'd probably give it a 10. Uh, Yeah, it's just stellar stuff. The way it moves, the performances, the, yeah, all cylinders.
1: I give it an eight. I thought it was really good. Uh, We'll probably go up in the future if I watch this a couple more times. Like if I had to put it in points, like an 8.8, it's like right up there. Very good movie. And uh, yeah, I'm sure I'll buy this at some point. I'd like to own this. It's a great movie
0: yeah for sure yeah i I have it on v h s but that's not very valuable these days, so very nice. <laughs> maybe you can upgrade to a laser disc <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe one day uh, oh god
1: uh so let's talk about what happened this week in film. A lot of significant stuff happened this week uh first up, I'd like to offer a tribute to Mr. Wilford Brimley, who died at 85 years old from complications due to diabetes. Uh, Brimley was a uh, prominent actor in uh, The Thing, a couple other movies. He's mostly known as the face of the Diabetes Association. Uh, he, weirdly, he pronounced it diabetes. And that kind of stuck. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, we'll be missed. I like Wilford Brimley and his legendary mustache.
0: Yeah, no, no doubt.
1: Rest in peace. Rest in peace. Tom Hanks is in talks to play Geppetto in a live action Pinocchio remake from Disney. Robert Zemeckis is directing. Uh, I can tell I don't think you like that.
0: Oh, no, I actually, I actually really do. I don't think anybody else could play him other than Tom Hanks. So Yeah, but do you think uh, we need like a Pinocchio um,
1: remake? Are you, I mean, Disney's kind of just rolling them off at assembly at this
0: point. Yeah, for sure. But Zemeckis is an awesome fucking director. So you're telling you me. Know, I, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. I know. You know. I, I, I sign me up if you know, if a guy like that's at the helm, right? So, yeah, I'll check it out. Bobby Z is my guy,
1: and it's cool to yeah. see him with Tom Hanks again after Forrest Gump and The Polar Express. So, yeah, I think that'll be good. I'm Pinocchio. I haven't seen since I was like six years old. I don't really remember it that well, but uh, I'll be sure to watch it before I see the new one, if I ever do get to see the new one. Yeah. And speaking of Disney, and this really pissed me off and pissed off a lot of people. They announced they are going to be releasing Mulan on Disney Plus on September 4th for the hefty price of $29.99. Even if you already have Disney Plus, if you want to watch Mulan, you got to shell out 30 bucks to watch it. That is <laughs> fucked up. That is really fucked up.
0: Well, yeah. Yeah. Um... So I, in advance, I, I'm not, I, I, I can't, I don't want to do that. Yeah. There's there's very, very, very few people that I would, like directors or creators that I would show out $30 to watch on my TV, on a streaming service that's already paid for each month. Yeah. There's very, very, very few people. I mean, it, and even then I don't have a way to justify it. So I would love to do Mulan on this podcast on Oscar Sunday, because I think it's going to, be a beautiful movie and have some some wonderful stuff going on but i I don't see a way of me having access to it uh anytime soon so sorry to listeners but i I just can't do that
1: out of principle i will not pay disney 30 bucks to watch a movie on a streaming service i already pay monthly money for that's fucking ridiculous yeah it's pretty (laughs) stupid yeah (laughs) and petty and it's really show i mean disney we know they're you know constantly taking advantage of people but this is ridiculous And people are already, like, a lot of people have already said, like, they're not going to pay that $30. I think this is going to blow up in their face.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it sucks because it's like, well, if they get enough people to give that stupid $30, then it won't matter to them. But I don't know. It'll
1: set precedent. And then they might do the same thing with, like, Black Widow and a lot of future movies. And that would just be outrageous.
0: Well, yeah, that would be devastating because you want like those movies, especially like a, you know Disney and Marvel, like movies that are for fucking kids, fucking children, mm-hmm. to be inter- to be entertained and to learn and grow about different cultures. How yeah. dare you? You know how dare you? <laughs> That's so messed up. Well, you know, it's always been like this. I mean, at the, at the
1: stores, you know, Best Buy, Target, you know, Blu-rays are like you know ten to fifteen bucks. Disney movies start at twenty five ninety nine. Yep, like because they know that the kids are gonna be walking through the store. They're gonna see, you know, Little Mermaid for thirty-five bucks, and they're gonna grab it. and Mom's gonna say yes. That's how Disney has been taking advantage of children for decades. Yeah, yeah, ugh, it's disgusting. Next up, Candyman director Nia DaCosta is going to be helming Captain Marvel two, uh, currently set for July twenty twenty two. I thought her Candyman looked really good. I was really looking forward to that. And uh, I think she'll do a great job on Captain Marvel, too.
0: Yeah, hell yeah. Wicked excited. I think there's really good stuff there.
1: Yeah. This was cool. They have confirmed John Wick 5. It's going to be shot back-to-back with John Wick 4. Sure. Okay. Why not? (laughs) Fuck it. Yeah. Three solid badass action movies. No signs of stopping. No signs of getting worse. I am in for the long haul. Yeah, me too. Sign me up for 10. (laughs) I'm <laughs> straight and Keanu came out and said like he will do it as long as the fans want him to do it exactly. God, oh, God bless you. Keanu Reeves. <laughs> and finally the trailer for Judas and the black Messiah was released. It stars Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield. It's a biopic of black Panther leader, Fred Hampton and a betrayal by FBI informant, William O'Neill. And the trailer looks <laughs> fucking intense. I have a, uh, I don't know anything about this story. So I'm going in blind. I am excited.
0: Yeah, no kidding. This is to me the most exciting trailer that's come out recently. Uh, to see Daniel Kaluuya again do like an American role where this guy, people don't realize he's very British and his accent's very thick. Yeah. I, I love seeing him. And then to see Lakeith, to see the, the get out reunion coming this way. <laughs> fucking awesome. Can't wait.
1: You think that this is going to come out uh, to be like in time to be considered for the 2021 Oscars?
0: Fucking hope so, man. Yeah. <laughs> really if it do.
1: does, I mean, just from that trailer, I think Delroy Lindo's got some competition.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Which would be great, right? To it'd be great to have more black representation. Uh, the more, the merrier, in my opinion. And I think uh, if you have good roles like that, and yeah, Del Delroy Lindo and Daniel Kaluuya going at each other, that's awesome.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, that looks fantastic. And we get so few trailers these days. So when we do get a good, when we get one, I want to talk about every aspect. Yes. (laughs) Oh God.
0: What a bummer. So, (laughs) so what are we doing next week? Next week, we are going back to the first Oscars ever to talk about the movie that won best picture. That would be wings, which came out in 1927. So we'll be talking about the first Academy awards from 1928. That's, you know, I own it on DVD, so I'm going to, you know, watch and let you borrow it. Uh, this is something we want to do on the first string of uh, movies that we're doing on, um, on Oscar Sunday. So, it just seemed right, you know, to kind of finish off this first wave with the first movie that ever won. Wings.
1: The ver- back to the very beginning. The first movie yes. ever. win oh, Best Picture. Surreal. It's going to be cool. And uh, I've never seen this movie, so I'm sure it'll be fascinating. And uh, yeah, that'll be fantastic. Thank you for listening. This has been a very fun episode. Very impassioned. I really enjoyed On the Waterfront. Um, Next, uh, this week, this Wednesday on the Film Guys and Podcast, we are doing Hellraiser. Going to get weird in here. So (laughs) get ready. Bring your whips and chains and, you know, freak out with us. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Until then, we'll see you next Sunday. Peace.